0: Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 320. We're coming right off the heels of the saddest day of the Jewish calendar, Tishabov, the ninth of Ov, the day when both temples were destroyed, first by the Babylonians and then by the Romans, the second temple. Ov, the month of Ov is an acronym, Aleph, Beis, Edom and Bovel, says the Shalah alluding to the two kingdoms, Edem, the Roman Empire, which descends from Edem, from Esau, Magdil, Zuremi, as Rashi says at the end of chapter, by Pashas, by Yishlach, and Beis is Bovil, Babylon. And yet, within that saddest day, within that deep destruction, lies also the birth of our redemption. Mashiach is born on Tisha B'Av in the afternoon. And here we are coming right after Shabbos Nachmu. This year, Tishabav was Thursday, went right into the 10th of Av, then into Shabbos Nachmu, the first of the seven weeks of comfort, of consolation. But when you learn this, you realize it's more than just comforting someone who's been hurt, it's actually the healing and the growth. And the deeper purpose of that hurt, that within that destruction lies the birth and the genesis, the conception of gaula, of redemption, which of course contains a powerful lesson to all of us, especially in challenging times, that there's no such thing as just a dark, dead end. Everything is giving birth to a greater reality, a greater paradigm. So Tisha B'av will be the greatest holiday when when it will all be transformed as the prophet says and Rambam cites at the end of the laws of Tainus. And that is why the month of Av on one hand is the saddest month but Aryeh, which is the sign of this month is also an acronym for Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yem Kippur and Eishayin Ar-Aba all born in the mazel, in the sign of Aryeh of, of. So now begins the ascent. After the dark descent and the deep descent, we begin to climb. Shabbos Nachmu, Nachmu Nachmu Ami, be consoled, be consoled, my people, is the beginning of the climb, beginning of the revelation, the powerful revelation, that was birthed and conceived in the belly of the beast in the abyss of Tisha B'ov. And that carries a lesson collectively and personally for us, applying that to our lives, that wherever we may be, there's always that spark waiting to be redeemed, waiting to be released, waiting to be unleashed. That's where we are now. So that's a short introduction. This program is dedicated by Schneier and Yehudas Dixon in honor of Mendel Jacobson. So with that, let me make the announcement that I made last week. We have launched, thank God, this past Monday, the Meaningful Lifeline fundraising campaign. A campaign meant, especially in this time of urgency, to invite you all to partner with us in empowering people everywhere of all walks of life, including you and I, with programs and, and uh, events and teachings that can help us all grow, especially during these trying times. So please, I invite you to partner with us, give generously, go to MeaningfulLife.com slash Lifeline. You, you can dedicate a program, a class, it can be anonymous, any way you see fit, but I'm not bashful to say we've helped many people and we need your help, because it is a partnership. This program has continued on, focusing on many of the themes that we address, very relevant to whatever time we're dealing with. So those of you who've been listening to this program know the value of it, you Can hopefully appreciate the work that goes into it, the research and all the work that it takes to produce. It's a free program. We do not charge for it. Because we feel that people in their goodwill and good hearts will help, and they have. And I invite you now, it's a good opportunity, especially as we come from Tisha B'Av, from the three weeks. Tzimba Mishpat Tipodav Ishavah B'Tzdokah, it says. Last week's Haftarah Zion will be redeemed, will be redeemed through Mishpat, Teyuda, Halachim, and its captives through Tzdokah, through charity. So may your giving bring you back that God give you many times over. As we move from of slowly to the month of Elul, which only increases in our kindness and generosity and charity, this is a perfect time, which is why we launched it now, the Meaningful Meaningful Lifeline campaign. So please give generously. Okay. We also have created a whole section of resources that address many of the issues that we're dealing with. Every day we update it, literally every day, with new programs this past week. We had a, a powerful interview with myself and Dennis Prager. It reached millions of people, had unbelievable feedback. I had an interesting conversation as well, which was focused on the topic of Mashiach. All this can be found at MeaningfulLife.com. Just go to our calendar, it's right on the home homepage, or, or go to Calendar, and you'll see all the details and all the aspects of the activities that we are doing. And please take advantage of it. And um, you can also go to chassidahsupply.com, which focuses more on the My Life program and other programs that relate directly to teachings of chassidahs, classes, events, and so on. Okay. At chassidahsupply.com is where you can submit your question completely anonymously. um, And uh, question, comment, feedback... And as well as other resources that you feel, feel feel free to access. So after the housekeeping, let us now move to some of the topics. Let me go back to the theme that I began addressing, which is the period and time in which we are in. This week is also the month, the, the week of fifteenth of Av, six days after Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av comes the Chaimish Asavav, the full moon of this month. And Parshas Akev, which is this week leading into next Shabbos, as I said, now we're already going into the second week of the weeks of the seven weeks of comfort from Veschan and Nachamu. We move to Ekev, the second week. All of it carries tremendous lessons, and personal lessons of healing, of growth, of coping with distress, with anxiety, with challenges, and it's not difficult to. Uh, apply these teachings as soon as you see the formula, have like the key that unlocks these tremendous lessons. Above all, as I said before, that everything is in the process of healing. We live in a broken world. We live in a fragmented world. Tisha B'Av reminds us of that. But it doesn't remind us just to tell us the bad news. It reminds us because awareness is half the cure. And the fragment and the break, the, the actual breaking of the destruction of the temple Followed three weeks earlier by the breaking of the tablets. These are actual breaks and cracks. However, they're meant to bring greater strength and greater growth, which is why we go straight from Tisha B'Av into the 15th of Av, as the Mishnah says in the end of Tainus, Sechta Tainus. There were no holidays among Israel like 15th of Av and Yom Kippur. An interesting and strange equation. Equating Yom Kippur to the 15th of Av, 15th of Av to Yom Kippur. And yet, yes, Yom Kippur is the conclusion of the process that goes on right now, beginning from the three weeks, the 17th of Tammuz, concluding with Tisha B'av, and then continuing on. Because what was happening after the Jews had received the Torah at Sinai, on the Vav, Zion Sivan, Mountain and 49, 50 days after they left Egypt, so then they received the Torah. Moshe was on the mountain for 40, 40 days and 40 nights. He comes down, the E, Hashem tells him, and he sees, to his uh, dismay, the building of the golden calf, a total betrayal of God. They built a golden calf, whatever the reasons were, the calculations, miscalculations. He shatters the tablets. Of course, he reprimands. And then he marches back up on the mountain as a true leader to beg forgiveness for the people from God. He spends another 40 days from the 17th of Tammuz, including Tisha B'Av, is on the mountain. Every year we recreate that. Until Rosh Chodesh Al. There are two opinions, the first day, the second day. He comes down from the mountain, but he's not successful. He goes back a third time, the first or second day of Rishchei and stays another 40 days. And when does he descend the third 40-day period? Yom Kippur. Yeah. With the second tablets and God's declaration, Salachti Kidvarecha," I have forgiven, as you have spoken which we say right after, right after Kol Nidre, the night of Yom Kippur, this, that holiest night of the year. So the Jewish calendar is not just a bunch of disjointed days and just measuring time and scheduling events. The calendar contains the cycles of life. The exodus from Egypt is the birth of a nation, leaving captivity, Leaving Mitzra, Mitzrayim from the word limitations, constraints of all forms. Physical, but yet also emotional, psychological, spiritual. And they marched toward where? Allah. haraza the purpose of leaving Egypt was to march toward Sinai. And they received God's mandate, the blueprint for existence, Torah. Followed by which they build the temple, the Mishkan. And then, unfortunately, after the Sinai, what happens is they build the golden calf. So you have the story of the greatest heights, the marriage, mm-hmm. the marriage, but then the betrayal. And Moshe Rabbeinu is begging for forgiveness to reconcile, to heal, to rebuild, forgiveness. And he finally prevails in Yom Kippur. So you could see how Yom Kippur and two Ba'av are connected because Hamish Haase Ba'av is the full moon following Tisha B'av. The Gemara there in Tainish talks about the different reasons why it's considered such a great holiday. But at the end of the day, there are many reasons, different of different events that happened. But the Arizal comes and tells us this root reason. What is the root of it all? The root is because it follows Tisha B'av. Tisha B'av is the is ult- the ultimate descent the ultimate darkness. And therefore, you read that, every descent is in order to reach a higher state, a higher ascent. So the full moon of Av is different than the full moon all the months of the year because you can argue every month of the year there's a full moon. Why suddenly the 15th of Av is this great holiday? Because the full moon here is coming after the injured moon. The injured, yes. The wounded moon. Pagamha. Levona, miyut the begam, the wound of the moon that happened in the most epitomized way on Tishabov. You, you read the ployim is an expression in eter that it descended in, a, in an awesome way but in the wrong direction. In the destruction of the Beis Malchus, Le, the Lavona, Knessus Yisrael was injured so now, when it comes to full moon after that, that's a sign. And one of the reasons in the Gemara there is that the sign that the darkness has ended, the decree has ended, and now we're ready for healing. But because it comes right after the darkest, therefore it's the brightest. Not necessarily physically, but spiritually. That's why the 15th of Av, coming after Tisha B'Av, is as, is like a holiday, like Yom Kippur, because that's what it's about. It's about the healing that comes after the fall, after the betrayal, after the loss, after the trauma. Yom Kippur, of course, is the ultimate experience of that. And that won't take place till another 40 days and more than 40 days, 40, 55 50, 50 days from Tuba of. The 30 days, the 15 days from the tuba, end of, of the, last, the second half of, of the 30 days of El, and then the 10 days. Of um, Tishrei, and on that day, Achaz ba'shanah the unified day, that united day of Yom Kippur, is the full forgiveness, Selachti and receiving the second tablets. The holiest day of the year, because on that day, Moshe Rabbeinu achieved something unprecedented. <coughs> Excuse me. He achieved the birth of hope. Yom Kippur. Hope, the greatest gift. That no matter what happens in life, there's always hope. That we can do it better, that we can gain forgiveness, that when we make the effort, we can repair even that which has been broken. So Tuba of this week, is the beginning of that process, the beginning of the Aliyah, the beginning of the Ascent, as I mentioned earlier. So the lessons are very clear. That no matter what is happening in your life, it's giving birth to something greater. There's always the hope. There's always forgiveness. But you have to make the effort. Moshe Rabbeinu took him 80 days to gain this. It took him 40 days to receive the law, the Torah. But 80 days to gain forgiveness. And though we don't know everything that happened there, in those moments between God and Moshe Rabbeinu, but in the Pasha Kisisa, you read it, it's an unbelievable chapter. There are conversations the intimacy, the personal, a leader standing before God, begging for his people and prevailing. That itself is a, another yet lesson of never giving up, never taking no for an answer. So all this teaches us perseverance, fortitude, forge ahead, vayu so, move forward, and things open up. Never ever give up. Always see it through. Ekev, so the Rebbe explains, based on Chassidus, Ekev means, Ekev mean because, because of Ekev is a word that also means, as a result of, but Ekev also has the word Ekev, the heel, indicating, hinting to Ikfes the Mashiach. Ikfes the Mashiach, the heel of Mashiach, referring to the last days in Golis, right before the Geula, based on what is explained in Kabbalah, based on Madrashim and so on, that the entire history, time, is structured like a human body, with the head being the early stages of history, and then moving down the body, the torso, the emotions, is later in history, Matan Teira, then comes Hamikdash, and with the end of days, right before the Gula, is the Ekev, is the heel of history, the heel of this entire body which we've traveled through, and then, once you come to the heel, then comes Mashiach. So Ekev hints to that, as explained in a number of different places, which is, of course, relevant to our time. We've been told this is it. This is now the last leg. We're at the threshold of Geula. We have to open our eyes. to different expressions used by the Rebbe. But above all, it's about recognizing that, even though it's the heel, and you think it's so dark, because the heel is called, in Ovez Rab in the Medrash, the Medrash explains how the body corresponds to every part of this universe, just like the earth. Just like the earth has mountains and valleys, and forests and deserts and so on, it all we all have a parallel of that, a mirror image of that in our bodies. And what is the heel in the body? It says that's the Odom. because the heel is the most insensitive part. That's why the heel can carry a lot of weight and pressure. So on one hand, the heel doesn't have any revealed vitality as it is in other parts of the body. As Chassidus brings that when you put your foot in a hot bath, when you want to go into a hot bath, the first thing is you put your heel. Because the heel doesn't feel it quite. You don't put your head in. The heel represents the ish noshim p'shutim. There's no giluyim, there's no revelation. That's why there's m'sidus nefesh. The mind, of course, is all intellect. Emotions, is the heart, is the feelings. But the heel represents the place that's the least amount of revealed vitality and chayas and energy. And yet, because of that, there is revealed the deepest power of Mesides is putting your foot in the hot water, which the muscle for that is that you're ready to march forward because you're not thinking. You're not, you know, your mind is not getting in the way, your heart is not getting in the way. So that's the paradox of our times, that in the complete concealment, is revealed often the greatest powers. The Rebbe has interesting chiddush, Lakut Tsechus Chelik Tes in E Pasha Ekev. It's from my Morim and the Sikhs from Tovshin Chovhe Pesach time, where the Rebbe says. So when we say Chiddush says that when a person has intelligence, it sometimes blocks and impedes the ability to have pure Amuna, because Amuna Pshut is simple faith. When you're too smart. The intelligence gets in the way. So the question is, is it the fact that just intelligence gets in the way? It's not that the simple person, the akev, is directly connected to the highest levels of the divine. It's just that when you get the seichel up, so so where is it revealed? And things that don't have any giluim, any revelation. But the Rebbe proves from a mimer in Torah Eir that no, the akev is actually akeli, a from a siddhis It's not just that because it doesn't have anything that blocks the way so you have the deepest levels emerge. It's actually a keli. Its simplicity is a container that is able to contain these highest levels. So right before the ge'ula, on one hand, we are the lowest of all generations. Like the Gemara says, im reshenim kemalochim. If the, if the first ones were like angels, we're like human beings and so on. So we're on one hand, not, we don't have the stature, the level, the spiritual power of earlier generations. But what we have is, what he says in Bosi as well as in the Maimonim of Tovshin Tes Pesach, from the Frida Kadab, the Tovshin Yud, Tav the the simple Anche Chayel, the foot soldiers, foot soldiers, Akev that march forward. They're not the generals, they're not the sergeants, they're not the colonels, they're not the all the different officers, they're the simple foot soldiers. They have the capacity to finish the job, and when God is the king, he splurges and gives them all the treasures, he gives it specifically to them. In the famous sikh that the Rebbe spoke in Ches, 1948, printed now, Yemei Breshis, which I had the honor to prepare, was the lessons of chess. A lesson of chess in Rukhnis, in Avedis Hashem, so the Rebbe explains that the pawn, even though it's the, it's the simplest of all the pieces on the chessboard, can only move one, one step at a time, but when it reaches the other end, it becomes the queen, becomes the greatest. So again, the akev, the simple pawn, the simple foot soldier, reaches the greatest heights. It tells us as well, never underestimate the power that each of us has, no matter how great or not great you may think you are, we are now in this generation, the last generation of Golas, have the power to finish the job carrying the baton in the last leg and finishing the job Makim the one who like, does the final, the final hit, is the one that finishes the job for all the generations up till now. And we all hope that long before Tuba Av, as we speak, the Gola should come and reveal all the potency and the power that was contained In even the darkest moments throughout history. Okay. So, we're going to deal with a few questions. And I want to first give some cross referencing on this, what I just discussed, 15th of Akev. So, episodes 77, 78, 128, 222, 223, 272, 273. These are previous episodes of previous years when I discussed these topics. Some like to look up and listen to previous years because they all complement each other. So there you have the references. I should also mention all these programs can be downloaded as podcasts on all platforms, audio and video, as well as, um, uh, as, well as when you check the YouTube, you can see time stamped. if you want to find a specific topic, which can now also easily be done by a search. If you're searching for any topic from A to Z, just search the words, Achsidasupply.com or Google Achsidasupply.com and you'll most likely find what you're looking for. Okay, so here comes a question, some of it relevant to our times. What are your thoughts on today's political conflicts and polarization? Yeah, everything is being politicized, everything literally sad, sad. So I gave a talk about this last Wednesday. Just for the record, every Wednesday. I do a, a weekly global master class, usually on topics related to our time. So the last week's class was called Elephants and Donkeys. Where are the humans? You can check it out. You go to MeaningfulLife.com, you'll find that title. Uh, so I discussed elephants and donkeys. So here's one person who writes the question. My husband and I listened to your talk on donkeys and elephants. You made excellent points, but we would like to respectfully point out that people coalesce around a particular party because of the ideals that the party espouses. I personally think that's wrong to make moral equivalence between the Democrats and Republicans because the Democrats are pushing for rights, quote-unquote rights that are the country dictator, late-term abortion, LGBTQT instruction in elementary school, economic socialism, leading to communism, bankrupting the economy with extreme quote-unquote green laws, and failing to, protect, failing to protect people's lives and property from rioters, Rachman al-Litzlan. Okay. Suppose Democrats legislate that yeshivas must teach our children that gay marriage is normal, God forbid. I believe, based on current behavior, that when you try to have a civil discussion with them, your words will fall on deaf ears. Well, in my, in my talk there, and I definitely encourage you to listen to it, I I very deliberately, as I always do, avoid getting into politics. Politics is just saying that one party is good and one party is bad. Every individual has their position to just create generalities, sweeping generalities about any group, whether Republicans or Democrats, I find is part of the problem. So I'm not going to right now address what the Republican platform stands for, the the Democrat. My whole point of that talk was we are the humans. Elephants and donkeys, everyone's become elephants and donkeys, battling for control, for power, and you don't feel leadership. You don't feel humility. You don't feel anyone caring about the cause. Everyone has their agenda, their strings attached. So that's why, intentionally, I'm not going to go there. I understand what you're saying, yes. The parties have, generally speaking, try to represent certain principles, but you see these things change, and different presidents it, it change policies, even while... Even when they're in part of a political party. So, I don't want to, as I said, any broad stroke I don't want to paint any broad strokes of generalities and platitudes. But I appreciate your comments and thank you for your kind words. And um, I believe that going from a Toyota point of view, we have to look at what the Toyota standards and values are and then see which party or which individual that you're voting for fits most your standards and values that would be my way of looking at it It makes no difference whether they're called democrat or republican unfortunately it's become seriously polarized and right now just about everyone wanting to control the democrats wanting to get rid of trump and uh, and of course the republicans wanting to maintain control and control both houses so unfortunately it's left us all with a very bitter taste even cynical Attitude, because you don't see anyone really getting together. Everything is for the people's personal agendas and control and so on. And I refer you more to that class where I discussed it more at length. Okay. Now, next question. Unrelated. What can I do about my losing trust in God? I want to explore the pain of the current situation, global, personal, and how that sits with trust in Hashem. Sad and painful things are happening. If I felt sure that the sad and painful things will go away, I can bite my lip and tell myself, this too shall pass. We don't understand God's ways. This is an expression of God's kindness and goodness. This is Hashem's way way of enabling me to deepen my relationship. So I will continue to sing His praises and pray that the pain gets healed sooner. But when the pain and sadness doesn't go away, and even new pain and sadness is introduced, it's hard to feel positive and trusting. I begin to feel numbed. My words of praise and and prayer are said by rote and yoke. I feel like there is no point in asking anymore. As pain in one shape and form is inevitable, built into the nature of creation, we can't stop it from coming. But I continue to ask because I know Hashem wants us to. But the requests are made with a lump in my throat. Not with the full trust that I will receive revealed good. I learned that this is not the proper way of trusting Hashem. Please help me work through this trust amidst chronic pain. As always, it's extremely difficult to speak when a person is in pain. Because pain is an emotional, guttural feeling in within, within the gut feeling which is in your heart. So what are we gonna do? Start justifying, explaining? As I always point out, the brilliant mind cannot speak to a bleeding heart. The First and most important thing thing is sensitivity. So to just go ahead and dismiss and say you won't be in pain and, and avoid it and so on, is just words. So the first thing is that we have to have the empathy and the care and the sensitivity to a person's situation. I don't know who you are. I don't know all the details of your life. But I would definitely encourage you to speak to people who love you and you love them. Because that goes a long way. It may not have answers. And it's not just going to eliminate the challenges. But it gives one strength. Because at the end of the day, the key counterforce to pain and suffering is not to get rid of the pain and suffering. That obviously we all pray for. But it's to be able to transcend and endure it and become greater through it. And this isn't just a a statement. This is a proven method that people who've suffered and they were able to not focus on themselves, focus on others, focus on their service, focus on purpose and meaning of being kind and generous, not giving in to their base instincts and to their gravitating to feeling bitter and complaining. They're the ones that are able to counter pain. So that's the interesting paradox, that the more you focus on the pain the more, more you become entangled by it or within it, the more you're able to not focus on it, but focus on yourself and what your role, the more, the, the, best, the more it alleviates the pain. This is proven. So how do we get beyond the catch-22? You're talking about saying this too shall pass. That's your you the only salvation. Of course we pray for that, and we should pray for that. But you cannot rely and say, you know what, meanwhile, I'll stay paralyzed until it passes. No. Even in the darkest moments, there are ways that you can find ways to be able to move beyond it. And that usually by re- reaching out and helping other people, being kinder, being gentler. Allowing yourself to succumb and saying, look what's happening to me, to be the victim is essentially bringing the pain onto yourself in a way that you you yourself cannot free yourself from it. I hope that makes sense. And I'm not trying to use a mind for a heart to to speak to a bleeding heart. I'm trying to explain that even from a point of view of emotions, one shouldn't understand this. Because when you're giving, when you're kind, that's also an emotional reaction. That emotion counters the, the fears, the anger, the sadness that comes from the painful situations. Now, there's so much that can be said on this topic. I've spoken about it many times. I'll just refer you to episode 142. And actually, in episode 97, there's a good essay. One of the essayists wrote something about it. I have in Toward a Meaningful Life, the chapter on pain and suffering, which I believe can also be helpful. So the key thing is this. We cannot always control whether the pain will last or not. But we can control our attitude to it. Now, we talk about chronic pain and physical pain or other forms of pain that you can treat, then by all means, go to a doctor, go to someone that can help treat such pain. But when I'm talking about psychic pain, emotional, the, the disappointment, the, the discouragement, and the, the, despondency, the despondency that comes from painful situations, there, one, one, a few points, one point is that you need to realize that the way to counter is by doing good things, serving, not focusing on yourself, be around people who lend, who lend support, words of support, encouragement, who you can lean on. Study things about the soul. Study chesidus, other teachings that teach you about your soul and its strengths. Every morning when you say, that your soul has been returned to you. Your contract has been renewed. We say a few lines later. The soul you've given instilled within me is pure, pure. Acts as that purity. That is the way we deal with darkness. We don't fight darkness with weapons, We we introduce light, and light automatically dispels any form of darkness. This is a short response. There's much more to be said. But above all, reach out and talk to someone that you care about or cares about you. That gives a lot of strength to be able to get through darker moments. We can't always do it ourselves. Okay. <clears throat> when the Rebbe says Trachgut Vitzaingut, based on the Samachik statement, he makes it clear. It's not just a statement. You could say trachgudzang, when if things really went away, the pain, of course. I'll think good. No, this is the way you, you eliminate the, the, the difficult and negative things. By thinking good. How could you think good when it's not good? By not focusing on yourself and your pain and realizing there's a deeper story here. And above all, your attitude has to always be a positive one. I can overcome anything. To say, if the pain goes away, then I'll be fine, then you're a victim. You can do things to alleviate the pain, alleviate the pain even right now. Through positive thinking, through positive actions, through being around people, through positive meditations and study, through prayer, through Torah and good deeds—the three pillars upon which the universe rests and the mini universe and microcosm each one of us rests. Adam cotton, Adam elam cotton adam. The world, the, the human being is a universe and microcosm. Okay, going to the next question. As I mentioned in the last few weeks, I'm beginning to emerge and not just focusing on Corona and COVID-19 related topics or racism related topics, but topics that still affect us. But some of them I pushed off and I'm going back now. I'm starting to reintroduce questions that go back. Actually, it was episode 300 when the pandemic became official. So we're talking about 20 weeks ago Um, like five months, right, March. So I'm going to be going back to questions that were asked back then, and I appreciate the patience. I told you I would come back to the questions. So any question that you asked, whether it was months ago or whenever it will be, I will address, and just in time, we will get there. So don't hesitate. If you haven't had your question answered, don't get dissuaded. Just be patient, and I will get to it. So another question which was asked around Pesach time, because it was relevant then, but it's relevant at all times, by the Sheir Habor and the Leviathan. We are taught that right before Mashiach comes, there will be a battle between a giant ox and a Leviathan. A Leviathan, some pronounce it. A giant fish. Does the Torah mean an actual physical giant ox and giant sea creature? Or are they metaphors for something spiritual? Very good question, and this is a follow-up to last week, Goy Gomogig, if you remember, we spoke about the battle of Goi Gomogig, uh, what uh, taylor talks about, and Chassidus as well discusses it to some extent. Not a lot, but to some extent. So Sherber Lev is actually a Maimon Lekut taylor Leviosin Yosun Zei is a, a Maimon Pasha with where Al Alter talks about the Leviosin Sherber. It's based on a Medish. Now, Mashiach comes, Love, there'll be a battle where the, between the the, the HaBar, which is essentially an ox, a goring ox, and Lev which is a great big fish, like a whale. Or some say it's not a whale. And the battle will be that they will pierce each other. Shed HaBar has horns. And the fish has fins. And they will pierce each other. That's a Ahmedesh. So the question is, what is going on? What does this mean? So if you look in, the Rebbe has a letter, and I've referred to it a number of times. It's now printed in the second volume of Igreus Based, on, It comes from Tshuva Subayurim that the Rebbe wrote answers the time when Koivitz Lubavitch was printed in the mid-40s. The Rebbe would answer questions. And there, there's a section on Tchir Hamesim, and the Rebbe speaks about somewhat some sources on the Livyosna's Sheir Bar. So many commentaries say it's not a physical battle, it's a spiritual one between two forces. Some say it's also a physical one that manifests that spiritual battle. The Altareb explains the Sheir Abar, of course, is an animal for a land, that mammal, animal. The Livyosna is a water um, animal. So they represent the battle between Al-Mudis and Al-Mudis which is the hidden worlds and the revealed worlds as he discusses there the significance of the piercing, the bottom line, what they represent, is the final curtain call on Golos. They're the final conflict and battle that needs to be resolved between materialism and spirituality. And it is a battle. Whether it's a physical, again, or only a spiritual, that's different commentaries explain it. But in a spiritual sense, it's representing that battle. Sometimes it's called a kniggya, like actually a a, a game that is set up between these two forces. In personal lives, it's essentially the difference between the sherah but is like the animal within us and the fish is actually much more pure because the fish doesn't need shkhita, doesn't need to be slaughtered because it's always immersed in its source in the waters. And yet it also has its challenges. So overall, these are the sources that I just described, where it's discussed in more detail. As I said, it's the final battle at the end of time that will lead into the Geul Amittis Vashleim. Okay. And I gave the few sources so you can look it up. The next topic is uh, quite a painful one. It's one of those I'd rather not do. But that's what this program's about, doing things that we don't always necessarily want to do because we have to cover topics that are not always pleasant. So, to put it in a uh, delicate way, what can be done about phone addiction and worse? Cell phone addiction of a spouse. This is a question that goes back a while. I have addressed it in different times in different ways, but let me go to it because it's uh, unfortunately a reality that needs to be addressed. Many people have very difficulty talking about it because of shame, because of uh, pride, because of reputation. So I have at least at least at, uh, 20 questions just on this topic. I'm going to try to sum them up and address them. I'll address some now. If I don't finish, I'll continue continuing programs. I know whenever I speak about these matters, and I want to say this outright, that many of you are listening may not have had the courage or did not want to discuss this with anyone yet. So I encourage you to find ways to deal with it. Do not just push it under the carpet. And if this is the opportunity where you hear me speaking about it, then of course it's without names, and it may be your story. It's not because I know that because unfortunately, this story is shared by many in different ways. There's nothing to be ashamed of. not saying you have to go through the streets and announce that we have a problem, but there is help. There are people that can help. Do not despair. I find many people despair. They say, I don't know what to do. I don't want to divorce my husband. It's destroying my family, so I just swallow it. I will address it, but I just wanted to say that at the outset. So here's the first uh, selection of questions on this topic. My husband, of over 25 years, is a wonderful, hard-working man with multiple great qualities. I'm writing because he has, over the past several years, become more and more reliant on his cell phone to the point of addiction. I'm not concerned that he's visiting inappropriate sites, thank God, but his addiction to games, sports, and other innocuous things quote unquote have led him have led him to be so consumed with his phone that I've suspected for some time that he may even be checking using his phone on Shabbos in private. Recently, I overheard one of our children asking him if his phone was on Shabbos because he thought he heard the familiar game sounds when he woke up unexpectedly in the middle of the night, which he adamantly denied. I am heartbroken and worried sick. Should I confront him? Let him know I'm aware of his addiction and offer to get him help. Should I let this be? I don't want to destroy our relationship and our family dynamic, which is really pleasant, but I'm deeply disappointed and can feel resentment festering beneath the surface. Any guidance would be appreciated. Another person writes similarly, so I'll read that and then I'll address this. Thank you for your very wise counsel. I listen weekly and learn so much from you. May you be blessed to continue sharing your gift of explaining things in the way that enters the heart. Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson, for never shying away from any question. I am an avid listener of your program and your teachings and advice have helped me and my family in many ways. I'm sure you receive numerous questions and try to answer all of them. Quite some time ago, I submitted a question which I don't believe you've addressed. I would wait my turn, but right now I'm distraught and wondering if you could please speak about this as soon as possible. And I believe this person is what wrote the previous letter because now she continues, she says, my husband, a very good person, from a chassidish in every way, at least to my knowledge, seems to have developed a serious addiction to his phone. And continues more or less with similar words of the previous letter. So I, uh, I, I would assume it's the same person. May not be because unfortunately, this is not a one person story. It's, as I said, more common than we would like to believe. So, let me address this before we go into other topics. It's an excellent question. I'd rather not have the question. I'd rather it would be fine. And I want to address it instead of on two levels on a symptomatic level, meaning what can be done short term, immediate, and on a deeper level. I'm going to start with the deeper level, then we'll talk about the short term. On a deeper level, when everything is going well in a marriage, and everything is smooth, no hitches, so very often we don't dig deeper in developing a deeper connection between spouses. There's no need. I mentioned before Yom Kippur. Moshe Rabbeinu had no choice. Because of the betrayal, because of the golden calf, he had to dig deeper and create a much more real and a much more profound relationship with God to the point that he was able to gain forgiveness for the people. The same thing is here. When something happens in a marriage like what you're describing, which may not be a direct betrayal, we'll address that in a later program, or I don't think we'll have time today, but probably in a later program. But there's still a betrayal of trust. It's a betrayal of what the commitments, of a Shabbos, Shem Shabbos home, respect for your husband, you find out these things, it undermines. So one, we could, yes, you could become distraught and, and become very angry and frustrated and maybe swallow it because, because of family, you know, want to upset and rack the boat, as you wrote, and upset things. Or you can see it as an opportunity, as an opportunity to dig deeper and maybe enhance and, 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 uh, and, and uh, deepen the relationship with your spouse. So how does one do that? No, I would not go over and say, listen, I suspect this and that. Because in most cases, you do that, you create confrontation. He will most likely deny it. Then you'll get into a battle, and he'll start saying, "Well, you, don't trust me, etc. And what are you going to say? No, I don't, or I do. So I would not suggest that approach. That approach I would suggest when all else fails and it's affecting you in a very profound way, but not initially. And even maybe more than initially. My approach would be, is to find a way to have a deeper conversation with your spouse. Not about the phone, not about shoppers, not about anything. Just say, you know, time passes in the marriage. We love each other. We built a family. We built children. Why don't we do something? Let's talk a little. It's important to deepen the relationship because if you can dig deeper and reach his heart in a way that you haven't until now, and not that it's your responsibility to take care of him or fix him, but on a deeper level, this is like a an assay, a test. Then perhaps a conversation on more on the deeper levels will create the opportunity where they, you can bring up a topic that may be uh, sensitive or confrontational. If you just brought it up at the at the outset. So, in other words, having a good conversation, talking some of your own challenges, and if your husband responds to that, then it could be that can be the the ground you create. You like a cultivating. I'm not saying in a manipulative way, but you create an environment where it's easier for you to say, you know, there's something on my heart. Or he may even sense something on your heart. And that way you're not blaming him, you're not confronting him, you're not causing him to become defensive. You're allowing your love to dominate, and he sees that, and then he could say, what's bothering you? And you can slowly begin to suggest something without accusation. That's the key. Because accusation always ends up being confrontational and will end up not positive. Because it's not about right and wrong. It's about personal feelings. He's going to say it's his own space. It's none of your business, etc. But if you have that and, he, and he's in a, in a caring conversation, I could see being able to bring it up and him responding. Now, I would, I would tread carefully and gently because of, you know, want suddenly again to him to jump into defense mode and accusations back and forth and start blaming you for things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's the longer term. The shorter term, I don't know what to say. I would say in the short term, you probably have to overlook certain things, as much as painful as it may be. Um, with your children, you know, hopefully, they have to build a relationship with their father of trust. I definitely would not create a cabal where you all together gang like, up and say, okay, look what, uh, look what daddy is doing, look what our father is doing, our husband is doing. I would say, you know, how do you, you know I, would, I wouldn't defend them either, because if it's true, and they do know that, it would not be good if you defend them. So I would just say, look, this is something that I'm, I, I've, I'm not aware of, and um, I wouldn't encourage them probably to speak to him, but I would definitely try to deflect the issue short term, but definitely work on the longer term approach, I don't see any other short-term solution because anything else, confrontation won't work. I don't think, I would not send the children to confront their father because he's gonna also deny it. And it may not turn into good results because then they will be like lying and everybody will know when everyone's lying. I wouldn't approach it that way. So short-term I would overlook and try to talk about other things, try to make the Shabbos table a lot more exciting because remember, another thing is, boy, When there's a vacuum, you turn to things that excite you, whether it's games or other things, because there's a vacuum. The more excitement the home can be, the more dynamic it can be around good, beautiful, kudusheh, holy things, and engaging your husband in that, and the children engage, adult children, young children, I'm not sure the ages, that can also be very positive, because then he's busy with doing these things. So instead of confronting, I would bring light into the picture. Start bringing more activities and so on. And of course in a natural way. Because when you're busy with good things, then you generally can avoid less than the, the negative things. That's my short or relatively short response. As I said, there's much more on this topic and I will address it. But because of time, I will now... Um, Move to the next question and uh, then do some follow ups. Okay. There we are. The next question is this. It's also a follow up from back a while back. Back in episode, I believe it was 297, right before the pandemic broke spoke a lot there about accessing non-Jewish sources, books, resources, and so on. So the question came up, um, is it appropriate to see non-religious therapists? So let me read a few of the questions. Here, too, there's many questions. I don't think I can go through all of them right now, but I'll do a few of them. Yeah, so here goes. speaking to Mashpim and rabeim versus therapists regarding psychological, social, and emotional issues. Lately, there's been much talk regarding psychological, social, and emotional issues. I'm your, in your, resp- I'm not sure, in your response, there are referrals made to Mashpi, Rabbeim, and friends, but I don't recall much emphasis on the therapeutic process, which is objective, reflective, and neutral. Therapy is also considered an allied medical intervention. If someone were to suffer from a medical problem, a doctor would be the one to treat. Why do referrals to mental health professionals come with such hesitance or not made at all? Okay, another person writes, running to from non-Jewish professionals and therapists. One of the prominent rabbis gave a speech a while back and, and I was wondering if this is Take, the Rebbe's view. Here's a summary of his speech. He was speaking to a commu- the community, and he said that in this yeshiva, in this uh, study hall, which is the foundation of the community, the best way to combat the following issues is to speak about it here, and then you can speak about it with your families. All new things are not permitted by the Torah. It's an expression. He was speaking about, quote-unquote, the new Chabad that runs to professionals and therapists to solve everyday issues. He said that since Moshe Rabbeinu, there have been issues in education, chinuch, and it's not a new thing. The, the, the mere idea that we need to come to, to professionals and thera- therapists, he says, is it's, it's, um It's heresy. They don't understand the true matters of the soul. They may understand the animal soul, but not the divine soul. When the reform movement was introduced, many prominent rabbis went along with it. There were a few rabbinim which spoke out against, and everyone thought they were wrong. Similarly today, this new approach to consult and to learn from people which have influence from outside the Rebbe's directives is just like that. These professionals, even if they say word for word like our beliefs, we can't accept them since they have a different approach to life. The Alter Rebbe said there is no world. In other words, the world is not taifus malkim. It shouldn't matter. They say there is no God. The world existence came by itself. And he went on to go on and on about basically completely negating and criticizing any appro- any. Any access and any uh, return, any turn to secular therapists. Now, it goes on and on about this person's speech, this rabbi's speech. I'll just sum it up. We're looking to build a shalom, so why are we going to people who want to look at their, what their homes look like? They use chachmis chesenius, that's made secular wisdom, which affects and compromises Yir fear of God doesn't belong in our homes and communities. The Rebbe says, meaning create, appoint for yourself a rabbi, not a therapist. We have plenty of, of uh, directives from the Rabbein. And he says, "We even if the therapist says similar things that are said in Teyudah Chassidahs, Still, they're coming from a very different direction. But he goes on and on in that approach and basically dismissing the the emotional problems that people have. He criticizes one of the professionals he heard saying in a parenting class, that every child needs two things, identity and a goal. If not, he will be depressed. This rabbi says that concept is against the idea of hashgacha pratis, divine providence. The goal is to serve God. So stay par- far away from parenting classes, from these therapists, even those that seem to get a heksher, an endorsement from prominent organizations. Okay, so the question to me is, what do I think about all of this, these two points which I'm going to address right now? So, this is a topic I've addressed at length in previous episodes, especially when we started my life, Hasidus Applied, episode 75, 233, 245 specifically, but especially in the beginning, because here's the big question. The Torah does say, Nitmishus Larephil The Torah says, the Torah gave permission for a doctor to heal. So you could limit that to only medical, physical, clinical conditions, but not emotional and psychological ones. But number one is there are emotional, and psychological issues that are chemical imbalances. They're also medical, clinical issues. Even though they may need therapy, but also need maybe medication or other interventions. So where do you draw the line? Even if you were to say there's no medical element to it and it's purely therapeutic, yes, of course first choice would be to find the a Yshamam, a Tado Sishied who can direct and guide you a Rav or Mashpia or a chav, a friend, or a professional that's Hashem, a shamitary or mitzvah that respects and understands where you're coming from. But let's say you can't find that or. There are professionals that have to have expertise in the area of uh, addiction, on the area of molestation, sexual violations. There are people who are experts. And we know when it comes to an expert, like when it comes to abris, you go, whoever's the biggest mumche, the biggest expert, even if he's not necessarily the biggest shamayim. So I cannot, in a blanket statement, agree with such a point That no, there's only one place to go. Yes, it's good to hold up the standard, and I understand the spirit of what the rabbi wanted to say, but practically speaking, as someone who has a lot of experience with people, every case is different. It depends what the situation is. There are situations where unfortunately rabbis and teachers that we know, at least in our orbit, are not capable. They're not trained, or they're not sensitive. What do you do then, I would ask this rabbi? You just do Nothing. So, of course, everything is in the Torah. But let's say it hasn't been found yet. Or or we are inadequate. (inaudible) Not because the Torah doesn't have answers. So this is more complicated and nuanced than just a black and white statement. We all understand God created the human being and the human psyche and our emotional psychological makeups. But now the challenge is, can we find in Torah and Chassidus the answers? Which is, of course, the whole objective of my life, Chassidus applied. And sometimes, yes, we may need to refer to someone as a professional. Not necessarily to get guidance, what is morality and ethics and what's a chassidish or a life. Obviously not. But to get guidance in a particular area where a person is dealing with whatever it may be, depression, may be addiction, may be family issues. In addition to the fact, the sad fact is, that with this approach, you can also create a lot of problems. People go to the rabbi, doesn't know what he's talking about. And he, and he just exacerbates the problem. We've seen that too. So oh, no, I will not agree with that in the practical sense, even though the spirit, we all agree about the same spirit of things. So the answer, therefore, is case by case. And there is room, depending on the situation, what you turn to. And obviously you want to turn to someone who respects God and respects morality and respects the Torah values. Because if not, as the Rebbe does write in some letters, they will actually suggest things that are heipachateh, and definitely the Ruach, He'pech of the Spirit, not the Spirit of Teh. So that's the general answer. And, the, and Tanya can be applied here. Tanya talks about Chacham's Chatsenius. And we'll discuss this at length in Chapter 8 in Tanya. That yes, you stay away from it, but there are situations where it can be used. It can be, in Avedis Hashem, it could be used. And I've seen from Yerusha doctors and therapists who actually use the psychology and, and take the best of it and, and develop a Torah-based psychology, which, of course, is the ultimate goal. But Chochma Begoyim timing, they have wisdom, and there is a doctor has that, given that permission. So we have to combine the two and find the best solution in every given situation. Regarding parenting programs and so on, it's again case by case. I've seen some that are really not good and antithetical to Torah values, and some there are. And some is a mix. I think we need to be wise in this regard. To take a kanoyizdika approach, a zealous approach, where everything is chodesh osim in We have a lot of challenges today, and we need to figure out how to deal with them. And each, again, case by case. Okay, with that, we are going to... Um, I'll do the chassidist question, and then we'll conclude. The question is, Was the shattering of the containers an accident, can everyone elevate sparks? This is the Hasidus question of the week. I'll read it in more specific detail. Well, hello, Rabbi Jacobson, Shavua tov. If you would be so kind as to answer the following two questions at your earliest convenience, I would be most appreciative. A simple yes or no answer would be fine in the interest, in the interest of time, although a fuller explanation is very welcome. First, I've recently heard the shattering of the vessels during the creation of this world would be described would be this, this world was this, I, heard them be, I heard it be described as an accident is this true second I also heard it said that everyone in the world can release these sparks can anyone do this or only Jews thank you for being the best person I know to, to whom one can ask these questions okay. this is a topic I believe I've also addressed I just don't see I haven't marked a cross reference but I will do that I'll mark that down for next week Shfirah Sakelim is the shattering of the vessels, the world of Toihu. This is all part of the cosmic process of creation. No, you cannot call it an accident. Who made the accident here exactly? God is creating the world. There are no accidents. It's quite intentional and deliberate. So will say, why did it shatter then? The language in this is because the energies were too intense for the containers that were too fragile. So the containers shattered. But this is not due to human behavior. This is prior, prior to the human being being on earth. The second verse in the teda the world of Tayu is God's creation. But when you think about it, with a little logic, and not just, not just technically, mechanically, what is the process? The process is that we have ourselves a fundamental dilemma, a fundamental um, uh, quandary. And that is, Reality dictates that the only reality, true reality, is godliness. Ain eid melvad, nothing but godliness. And indeed, in the words of the Arizal Neitzchayim, that before the Tzimtzum, eid and sofrayim amala, the divine energy, infinite divine energy, divine consciousness, was all that existed. There was no room for any other consciousness. God, however, wanted, Nasava desired, to have a diri as he explains right in the beginning of chapter, in the, in the, he explains in chapter 36 in Tanya. So to do so in a way that we could understand and relate to God created a tzimtzum, concealed the consciousness. From the point of view of the etzim, obviously that had no impact. From the point of view of the divine consciousness, it also has no impact. But from the point of view of another entity, that divine consciousness was so-called retracted or concealed leaving space. So here's the dichotomy, which is reality. On one hand, divine consciousness, Atzimus, Elakus rather, godliness is eneg On the other hand, that same god wants to have an independent consciousness. How do you reconcile the two? This is the fundamental dilemma of all of Teirah and Kabbalah and Chassidus. How do you interface between such two antithetical realities? So in the process of Seder Yishtal as the energies begin to flow and the containers begin to emerge, this is where the balance will take place. The energies reflect the divine, <inaudible> the containers reflect what God wants, a creative, a created identity that, can, that receives those energy. So in the early stages, it's all working well, but then there comes a point where they clash. And toyu is the place where they a collision takes place, the shattering or the breaking of the containers. All part of the process in many ways. This I've never seen explicitly in chassidus, but it seems to be the case that Toyo is a type of market correction. Because after the tzimtzum, there's these two different consciousnesses. There's a tension between a reality that is now concealed from our perspective, from the recipient's perspective, and the, and the independent consciousness of the recipient. Something has to give. Because if nothing would give, then suddenly we'd be at peace with the tzimtzum? No. So toyu is almost like a uh, protest, a reality check, a market correction, a market correction, that there's a clash between the divine energy and the containers. With the kavanah, this explains. It's breaking in order to build, like we spoke about the amigdash in order to build a much better holy temple, the third one that will be permanent, you sometimes have to raise the building. Raise with a Z, R-A-Z-E. That's what God does. So once they shatter, the goal is now to tikkun, to repair them, to put them together again, and this time in a balanced way with divine energy. And the containers can communicate with each other. But this also allows, you is another element, that there should be the disjointedness and the fragmentation that we have in this world a bunch of scattered pieces, and our job is to come and gather them all back together like a jigsaw puzzle, or like different torn pieces of a page, and turn it back into the narrative, the cosmic and divine narrative, the unified narrative, which was God's kavon intention in the first place. That's briefly the answer. So therefore, yes, everybody is charged with this. Not just Jews, everybody. And every good deed you do, every time you align your action your physical reality to what God wants, and for non-Jews it's through <speaking in Hebrew> the laws of tzedek, goodness and kindness and virtue and justice and so on, we are in some way repairing. So tikkun olam is for everyone. The sheva yitzada is that all the people of the world, all populations of the world, are civilizing this world, turning into an ethical, moral environment. And then, of course, there's the way Jews do it which is that, but plus the dimension they add to it, which is not really the scope of this discussion. Okay. With that said, that's exactly what we're about to finish doing as the Rebbe promises us. We're at the end of this tikkun, and waiting just for the gilu'i of all the good deeds and all the unifications, the yichudim, that have happened it should be emerged, should erupt into the ge'ula Hamitis vashlema. May it be now in the chodesh of going into Tuba of the great Yontif and having a prelude of Yom Kippur and all the days, special days that are coming. Everyone be blessed and be well. This is Chassidus applied, my life. Chizus applied episode 320 every Sunday 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you. We are all together experiencing an unprecedented historical event with the spread of the coronavirus, the raging unrest, racial tensions, being at home quarantined, social distancing, but soulfully closer. You don't ever understand the events that are happening now. We go from it and through it. We become better people. We need to introduce even more light than the darkness. So now is the time. Human beings are all part of one entity. Are we fulfilling our mission? How will I use this day to bring my unique light into this world? And we can do it.